In this recording, we're going to examine an issue which is going to be very prevalent this year, and that is whether or how one can use an estrog of Shemitah in order to fulfill their mitzvah on Sukkot. As we'll see, most of the estrogim that come from Israel this year are going to be Shemitah estrogim, and there are certain rules about how to use a Shemitah estrog, as well as potential halachic issues with purchasing or getting one altogether. So we're going to survey six major issues with a Shemitah Esrog and see what solutions Postkim have for each one. Issue number one regards the very definition of what a Shemitah Esrog is, because by the time Sukkot starts this year, it's the year after Shemitah, so it's going to be two weeks after Shemitah's already ended. So why should we define the Esrogim of this year as Shemitah Esrogim at all? Last year's Sukkot was when we should have had a problem of Shemitah Esrogim because that was the Sukkah during the Shemitah year. So the reason it could be a bigger problem this Sukkot than last Sukkot, even though it's no longer Shemitah, is because the Halacha is that the Shemitah rules are not like an on and off button, that they get turned on on Rosh Hashanah and then they get turned off the next Rosh Hashanah and they're over. But instead, the fruit that grew during the year of Shemitah maintains the rules and the laws of Shemitah even once the year is over. And vice versa, produce which grew before Shemitah, even though it goes into the Shemitah year, does not get the rules of Shemitah. So it's going to depend when the produce grew more than what moment in time we're actually standing in and using it. So that's why a lot of the produce which grew over the past year is still going to maintain the rules of Shemitah, even though the actual Shemitah year is over. Now, there's a very key distinction between fruits and vegetables as to when we consider them frozen in time, that they're defined as a Shemitah produce or not. When it comes to an elan, to fruit that grows on a tree, so basar chanata azlinan, we follow when the fruit emerges. If it emerged during Shemitah, then it's a Shemitah fruit. And if it emerged before Shemitah, then it's not a Shemitah fruit. But when it comes to vegetables, so basar lakita azlinan, we follow when they were picked. So the defining moment is when the vegetable was cut and picked by the farmer. Now, the question in the Gemara on Rosh Hashanah Tesvav Amad Aleph and Sukkah Lamed Tesvav is what is the status of an esrog? On the one hand, it's a fruit, so it should function like other fruits. It grows on a tree, so it should be based on when it emerged. But there are other opinions in the Gemara that it's an exception to the normal rules of fruits, and an esrog follows the laws of a vegetable that it depends when it was picked. So there's a debate in the Gemara as to what would be considered a Shemitah esrog. Is it an esrog which blossomed over the Shemitah year, or is it an esrog which was picked over the Shemitah year? Now this debate continued in the poskim. The Rambam in Hilchsmeister Sheni Parak Aleph Halacha Hey ruled that an esrog is an exception. It does not follow the laws of fruits, but rather the laws of vegetables. It depends when it was picked. As he writes, V'chein ha'esrog bilvad mishar peres ha'ilan. The esrog alone from all fruits of the tree, harehu keyerek, is like a vegetable. V'holchin achar lekitoso, and we follow when it was picked. Now the Rambam later in Hilchashmita v'yovel perak dalat halacha yud beis seems to hedge, and there he holds that we follow the stringency of both when the esrog blossomed and when it was picked. So that's a little bit of a different presentation of this halacha, but certainly the Rambam holds 
that there is significance to when the esrog was picked with regards to making it a Shemitah esrog. Now the Raivin in Hilchus Meister Sheni disagrees with the Rambam and he says that the esrog is like all other fruits, it follows when it blossomed. And Tosvos in Rosh Hashanah also seems to hold like that. So there is a debate between the Rishonim whether the esrog is purely like fruits and all that matters is when it blossomed or there's also significance to when it was picked or even in one place the Rambam seems to say that it only matters when it was picked. So this year for Sukkis, many of the Esrogim certainly are going to have blossomed during Shemitah, and many of them will probably have been picked before the Shemitah year was over, as opposed to last year's Sukkis, when many of the Esrogim certainly blossomed before Shemitah, and many of them were picked before Shemitah. So ironically, this Sukkis, after Shemitah ended, there's going to be more Shemitah Esrogim than last Sukkis, which was during Shemitah. Now there's a second factor that's going to to depend on whether an esrog is considered a Shemitah esrog, and that's not only when it blossomed slash was picked, but also when the Shemitah year is with regards to esrog. So we generally assume that the Shemitah year runs from Rosh Hashanah to Rosh Hashanah, but that's not entirely clear, and there are some poskim who have a different timeline. The Mishnah at the beginning of Rosh Hashanah lists four different times in the year which are called Rosh Hashanahs and a bunch of halachas which depend on each of those dates. So there's the most famous Rosh Hashanah, which we celebrate at the beginning of Tishrei, and two of the halachas that switch over at the Tishrei Rosh Hashanah are Lishmitin. It's the beginning and end of the Shemitah year. So the Shemitah year transitions at Rosh Hashanah and Liyurakos for vegetables. So you can't take Miser from last year's crop on this year's crop and the date that it switches is the Tishrei Rosh Hashanah. Then the Mishnah lists another Rosh Hashanah, which is Tu B'Shvat, according to Beis Hillel, according to Beis Shammai, it's the first of Shvat, and that is Rosh Hashanah Le'ilan, for fruit of the tree. So the year with regards to fruit of the tree switches at Tu B'Shvat. That's the date when you can't take Miser from the new crop on the old crop. Now, when it comes to figuring out what the dates of Shemitah are with regards to fruit of the tree, so there's a clash. On the one hand, the Shemitah year runs from the Tishrei Rosh Hashanah to the next Tishrei Rosh Hashanah. On the other hand, the Elon year runs from Tu B'Shvat to Tu B'Shvat. So which Rosh Hashanah do we use with regards to beginning and ending the Shemitah year for fruit of the tree? So this is a big debate between the poskim. The simple reading of the Rambam in Hilchah Shemitah Perak Dalat Halacha Tes is that the Rambam rules in accordance with conventional wisdom, and that is that the Shemitah year, both for vegetables and fruits, begins and ends at Tishrei. So even though the Miser year for fruit of the tree runs from Tu B'Shvat to Tu B'Shvat, but the Shemitah Rosh Hashanah of Tishrei trumps the Tu B'Shvat Rosh Hashanah, so with regards to Shemitah, the fruit of the tree is the same as the vegetables and it goes from Tishrei to Tishrei. So there would be no difference between vegetables or fruits with regards to Shemitah. 
even though there is a difference with regards to Meiser, but with regards to Shemitah, everything begins and ends in Tishrei. On the other hand, there are poskim who disagree with this view. Most famously, the Shalah in Shara Osios Kedusha Os Kufmem Daled. So he writes, that he's writing in order to prevent mistakes, meaning someone who reads the Rambam on the surface is going to make a mistake and think that the Rambam means what we just said. That Shemitah, even for fruit of the trees, runs from Tishrei to Tishrei. So the Shalah says that that's not the case. And when the Rambam uses the term Rosh Hashanah in that halacha, he is referring to the Rosh Hashanah of Ilanos, which is Tubishvat. Meaning when the Rambam says Rosh Hashanah in that halacha, it actually has two meanings. When it comes to vegetables, it's talking about Tishrei Rosh Hashanah. And when it comes to fruits, it's talking about Tubishvat Rosh Hashanah. So according to the Shalah, the Tishrei Rosh Hashanah for Shemitah does not trump the Tubishvat Rosh Hashanah for fruits of the trees, but rather each species maintains its own distinct Rosh Hashanah. If it's vegetables, it's in Tishrei. If it's fruits, it's in Shvat. And the Shemitah year runs depending on which species you're dealing with. So for fruits of the tree, it's going to run from Tubishvat to Tubishvat. So this was the Shalah's reading of the Rambam, and it was fairly controversial. The Pa'as HaShulchan, which is a very important work on the laws of Eretz Yisrael from a Talmud of the Vilna Gaon, and the Chazon Ish both disagree with this Shalah, and they maintain that the Rambam means, as he seems to say on the surface, that the Rosh Hashanah for Shemitah is always in Tishrei, and the Shemitah year, both for fruits and vegetables, runs from Tishrei to Tishrei. The Tubishvat date is of no significance to Shemitah, it's only relevant to the laws of Meiser. And that seems to be the conventional wisdom, the way we rule nowadays, that the Shemitah year always runs from Tishrei to Tishrei. Even with regard to fruit of the trees, they don't have their own Shemitah year from Tubishvat to Tubishvat. Now, interestingly, there are a number of early Rishonim who adopt the view of the Shalah. Rav Zevin in his Moadim Mahalacha on Tubishvat, so he quotes that Rabbeinu Hananel, whose commentary was discovered later, and he had a lot of traditions from the early Geonim. So in his commentary on Rosh Hashanah, Tesvav Amad Beis, and also the Aruch, which is an early dictionary of the Gemara, so in his entry on the word Benos Shuach, they both state explicitly, like the Shalah, that the Shemitah year for fruit of the trees goes from Tubishvat to Tubishvat. And in the Sefer Mile de Mordechai Simen Nun Zayin, he quotes one of the Geonim, Reb Nassan Av HaYeshiva, in an unpublished manuscript at Hebrew U. So he writes explicitly like the Shalah that the Shemitah year for fruit goes from Tubishvat to Tubishvat and not from Tishrei to Tishrei. So there is obviously a tradition from the Geonim like the approach of the Shalah. But on the other hand, Rav Zevin quotes that the Pnei Yoshua and Reb Kiva Eger adopt the view of the Pasa Shulchan and the Chazon Ish, the conventional view that Shemitah always runs from Tishrei to Tishrei, even with regards to fruit of the tree. So that seems to be the consensus of the Achronim. And likewise, the Minchas Chinuch in Mitzvah Shin Chav Ches Os Dalid quotes this whole issue. He quotes the opinion of the Shalah, and then he quotes that the Pasa Shulchan and the Pnei Yoshua disagree. So he seems to agree with the consensus of the Achronim. 
Now, the Maharam in his Chidushe Maharam on Sukkah Lamed Tesamud Beis has an important discussion of this issue. And again, he raises the issue specifically with regard to Esrog, whether fruits of the tree, the year of Shemitah, follows the Tishrei cycle or the Tubishvat cycle. And the Maharam brings a phenomenal proof from the Gemara there on Sukkah Lamed Tesamud Beis to the conventional view that the Shemitah year for fruits of the tree is from Tishrei to Tishrei. Because the Gemara is trying to find a case where the Lulav would not be Shemitah produce and the Esrog is. So the Gemara says that we're talking about the Sukkot holiday of the Shemitah year and therefore the Lulav which definitely emerged in the year before. So that follows the laws of fruit of the tree. And it's not considered a Shemitah lulav because it grew in the year before Shemitah. As opposed to the Esrog, which was picked after Rosh Hashanah and before Sukkot. So as we said, there is an opinion in the Gemara that the Esrog is an exception to the normal rules of fruits and it follows the year during which it was picked. So this Esrog, even though it grew in the sixth year, but since it was picked after Rosh Hashanah of Shemitah, so therefore it would be considered a Shemitah Esrog. So that's the Gemara's case where the Esrog is Shemitah and the Lulav is not Shemitah. So the Maharam says that this only makes sense if Rosh Hashanah is the year when we switch for an Esrog and also for other fruits of the tree. But if it switches at Tu Bishvat, then who cares that the Esrog was picked during the Shemitah year between Rosh Hashanah and Sukkot? It doesn't matter because the Esrog Shemitah year for fruits of the trees doesn't begin until Tu Bishvat. So this is a phenomenal proof from the Maharam to the view of Reb Kiveger and the Pnei Yoshua and the Pasa Shulchan that even with regards to fruit of the trees, Shemitah switches over at Rosh Hashanah and not at Tu Bishvat. And that's why if the Esrog is picked between Rosh Hashanah and Sukkot, it would be considered a Shemitah Esrog if you follow the view that the Esrog depends on when it was picked. Now, how does Rabbeinu Hananel explain this Gemara? So the Chazonish made a good point that according to Rabbeinu Hananel, the same way Esrog is an exception from the normal halachas of fruits, that it follows when the produce emerged, whereas the Esrog follows when it was picked like a vegetable. So that means the whole Esrog is different than regular fruits. So it would also follow the Rosh Hashanah of Tishrei like a vegetable. But that doesn't affect other fruits, which according to Rabbeinu Hananel, go from Tubishvat to Tubishvat. So that's how Rabbeinu Hananel could read this Gemara. On the other hand, Rashi on that Gemara, on Sukkalam and Tesamud Beis, says explicitly, unlike Rabbeinu Hananel, that the reason the Lulav goes from Tishrei to Tishrei is because fruits of the tree depend on when they emerge. And since this Lulav emerged before the Tishrei Rosh Hashanah, so therefore it's credited to the sixth year, not the Shemitah year. So you see that Rashi agrees with the consensus of the Achronim, of Reb Kiveger and the Pnei Yoshua and the Maharam, that even for fruits of the tree, the Shemitah year goes from Rosh Hashanah of Tishrei to Rosh Hashanah of Tishrei, not from Tubishvat to Tubishvat. So this is a very fundamental and wide-ranging debate between Rashi and Rabbeinu Hananel with many other poskim on either side. And that is, 
is, does the Shemitah year for fruits of the trees, which presumably includes the Esrog, does that switch over at Tishrei or at Tu Bishvat? And as we saw, the Chazon Ish says that Esrog would be an exception, but the Maharam clearly says that Esrog would follow the general trend of fruits of the trees. So according to Rabbeinu Hananel, every Esrog from last year Sukkis, which was during Shemitah, would not have been Shemitah Esrogim, whereas every Esrog from this year, whether it was picked before or after Rosh Hashanah, are all going to be considered Shemitah Esrogim, because this is in the middle of the Shemitah year with regards to fruit of the trees and Esrogs, which goes from Tu Bishvat to Tu Bishvat. So to summarize this first issue, there's two reasons why many of our Esrogim this year, Sukkis, are going to be considered Shemitah Esrogim, either according to Rabbeinu Hananel, because the Shemitah year runs from Tu Bishvat to Tu Bishvat, or according to the Raivid, because it depends when the Esrog emerged, and most of these Esrogim certainly emerged last year before Rosh Hashanah that ended Shemitah. There is, though, the opinion of the Rambam that it depends when they were picked. So according to the Rambam, it could be that if the Esrog was picked after Rosh Hashanah, even though the fruit emerged last year during Shemitah, but since it was only picked after Shemitah ended, so then it would not be considered a Shemitah Esrog. But working on the assumption that the majority of the Esrogim from Israel, this Sukkis, are going to be Shemitah Esrogim, so that brings us to issue number two, which is how can you purchase this Shemitah Esrog? Because the farmer is not a allowed to do business with Shemitah produce. So how are you able to buy a Shemitah Esrog without violating that rule? So the Gemara in Sukkah Lamed Aleph offers two options for how to do the purchase. The first is that you are allowed to purchase a small amount of Shemitah produce. So the prohibition is only for the farmer to sell like industrial amounts. But if he just has a little bit, then he could sell it. Now Rashi on Sukkah and the Rambam and Hel Shemitah of Yovel Perik Vav Halacha Aleph so they both understand this leniency to mean that even though the farmer is not allowed to sell Shemitah produce, but that only means that he can't sell it in bulk in order to make a profit and to have money to put away. But if he's just selling a little produce in order to be able to buy food for immediate use, so that would be allowed. That's part of the valid uses of Shemitah produce in order to be able to buy food. And the measurement that the Gemara gives for that is that he can sell the amount with which he would be able to purchase three meals. So that's considered immediate need is three meals. Now, Tosos puts this leniency differently, and he says that you're not allowed to pick the produce and then go sell it. But if two different people do the process, so one of them picks it, and then the other one goes and sells it, then that would not be prohibited. So either way, there's two different ways of saying this leniency in the Gemara, either Rashi and the Rambam that you can sell a little bit in order to buy food, or Tosvos that one person can pick it and the other person can sell it, but not the same person. This leniency, though, would probably not help for the types of sales that we do nowadays, which are large and industrial sized, and the farmer has the machinery to pick the esrogim and then sell them. So this might not be a good solution for our modern situation. So the Gemara does have another approach with which you could buy an esrog of Shemitah, and that's what's called Havla'a, that you swallow the cost of the esrog in other things. In other words, 
you buy things which are permitted, so either they're not produce at all, or the Gemara's case is that you pay extra for the lulav and the farmer gives you the esrog as a gift. Now we'll discuss later whether the lulav is also sanctified with Shemitah. So if the lulav does have the laws of Shemitah, then this wouldn't work, but we could still use the same approach and the person could pay a lot more for the aravos, let's say, which certainly don't have the laws of Shemitah. So if you pay $100 for the aravas, then the farmer will give you a lulav and an esrog as a gift for free. So the point is that on this approach, you're not paying for the Shemitah produce, you're buying other things and the farmer throws in the Shemitah esrog and maybe lulav as part of the package as a gift. So that might be an option to help us nowadays. Now there's two other solutions which are intended to resolve much bigger issues, which is how can the state of Israel function if all the farmers are off for an entire year? You can't have a modern society like that. So there are two solutions, and those are also going to resolve our problems of how do you buy an esrog of Shemitah. So the first is the Heter Mechira. This is a very controversial idea that many poskim allowed, which is to sell the entire land of Israel to a non-Jew, almost like we do with Mechiras Chametz, that we sell the Chametz over Pesach to a non-Jew. So in the same way, they do a quote-unquote sale of all the land of Israel to a non-Jew, and that allows the Jewish farmers to be able to work the land during the year of Shemitah because, again, they quote-unquote don't own it. So the Heter Mechira, if that works is obviously going to resolve the problems of the Shemitah Esrog because now it doesn't have the rules of Shemitah attached to it. So you could purchase it, no problem. But again, the Heter Mechira is very controversial. Many poskim were against it for a variety of reasons. So a lot of people try not to rely on that if they're able to. On the other hand, not relying on it could hurt the economy of Israel. So it's a complicated issue to say the least. Now the other solution is what's called Otsar Bastin. And under this idea, the farmers don't work their land in Shemitah and they don't have ownership of the produce, which is exactly the rules of Shemitah. But the Bastin, some sort of entity, takes control of the produce and they facilitate the sales and they take care of organizing all of what needs to be done with the produce and then they take the money that they earn from the sales and they pay the farmer. So in effect, he's getting paid to do what he does every year, but it's going through a second party. They're the ones facilitating it So that allows the farmer to be able to do a lot of what he would do on a normal year, including selling the produce through this basin, and he doesn't violate the laws of Shemitah. Now, this again is an imperfect solution, even though the concept of Otsar basin existed in the times of the Mishnah, so it is a legitimate idea. But in the times of the Mishnah, it was done differently than nowadays, because in the times of the Mishnah, it was a much more organized, centralized type of basin, as opposed to nowadays when we don't have an organized religious government in Israel, so each basin functions on their own, almost like a hechsher, 
each basin has their own standards, and it's not clear how much work the farmer can actually do, even though the basin took over the process. It doesn't seem like he can do everything he would do in a normal year. And furthermore, it's not clear how much the basin can close off the field from anyone coming and taking whatever they want, which is the original halacha of Shemitah, that anyone can come in and take what they want. So it's not clear that simply because the basin took over the process, they're able to close off the field. So obviously different but they did in Israel are going to have different standards, and it's going to depend on how that basin did the process, how reliable that Otsar basin is. But those are the two potential solutions to the issues of Shemitah in a modern economy, either the Heter Mechira or Otsar Beistin. And either one of those, if done properly, would resolve our issue also because once the Esrog loses its Shemitah status, so then you can pay and purchase it like regular produce. So now this brings us to the third issue, which is let's say a farmer violated the laws of Shemitah. So they worked or protected their field in violation of the rules, and now they produced an esrog and someone buys it. Are they able to use that esrog? And this is going to be relevant because let's say someone buys a heter mechira or an otzar based in esrog. So the farmer clearly worked it and protected it. So they know that according to the post game that he shouldn't have done that. He did something wrong. Can they use that esrog after the fact once they already purchased it? In other words, forgetting now about the issue of whether the farmer did the right thing or not, is the person able to use that esrog? So this seems to be a debate between Rashi and Tosvos on Sukkah, Lamites, and Beis. The Gemara there discusses a case where somebody purchased an esrog, which was Meshumar. It was guarded during the Shemitah year in violation of the rules of Shemitah. So Rashi writes that the problem is that by giving money to someone who guarded the esrog, so you're supporting and even tacitly encouraging their sin because you're paying them for having done something wrong. So one shouldn't do that. Now, Tosvos, quoting Rabbeinu Tam, disagrees, and he explains that the problem in the Gemara, it's talking about eating the produce that you buy, and Rabbeinu Tam says that produce, which was Mishumar, it was guarded in violation of the rules of Shemitah, is prohibited to be eaten. So there's a debate between Rashi and his grandson Rabbeinu Tam, if a farmer violated the laws of Shemitah, someone then buys that produce, according to Rashi, the produce is okay, he can eat it, he just shouldn't support the farmer by paying him for it. Whereas according to Rabbeinu Tam, that produce now becomes prohibited. It's not allowed to be eaten again. And the same debate is also at the end of Yevamos, the last page, Kufchav Beis Amid Aleph. The Gemara there has a case where a non-Jew says during a Shemitah year that this produce is Shel Azaka. It comes from Azaka. So the implication in the Gemara is that if we believed what this non-Jew was saying, then the produce would be prohibited. But for a certain reason, we don't believe him, as the Gemara explains there, so therefore it's permitted. So Rashi quotes one explanation in the name of his teachers, that azaka means that it was protected during the Shemitah year. So the implication would be that if produce was actually protected during the Shemitah year, then it's prohibited to be eaten. And that's how Rabbeinu Tam explains that Gemara also. 
But Rashi himself disagrees and he says, why would it be prohibited to be eaten just because it was protected? So he explains that Azaka was a city in Israel and the case is where this non-Jew is selling produce in Chutzla'ar, it's outside of Israel, and he's claiming that it comes from a city in Israel. So again, for whatever reason, he's not believed and that's why it's permitted. Otherwise, it would be Shemitah produce during a Shemitah year. Either way, Rashi and Rabbeinu Tam take the same positions in Yevamos as they do in Sukkah, that according to Rashi, produce which was protected during a Shemitah a year, even though the farmer did a sin, but the produce is still permitted to be eaten, whereas according to Rabbeinu Tam, it's prohibited to be eaten. Now, one of the halachas of Esrog is that it has to be able to be eaten. In other words, if it's a produce which would be prohibited, then it's also not allowed to be used for the Esrog. So according to Rabbeinu Tam, produce which was guarded is prohibited to be eaten, and therefore it should not be able to be used for the mitzvah of Esrog, as opposed to Rashi, who holds that it could be eaten, even though the farmer did something wrong, and therefore it could also be used for the mitzvah of Esrog. So the question of whether a farmer who worked or guarded his field during Shemitah, and then someone bought an Esrog from him, if that Esrog is valid for the mitzvah, seems to be a debate between Rashi and Rabbeinu Tam. So there's two arguments that this type of esrog is allowed to be used. The first is Rab Moshe Feinstein and Igris Moshe Chelek Aleph Simon Kuf Pei Vav has a tshuva on this issue. And he assumes that yes, according to Rabbeinu Tam, such an esrog cannot be used for the mitzvah. But Rab Moshe says that the majority of Rishonim disagree with Rabbeinu Tam and they agree with Rashi. Including the Rambam in Hilchmit of Yolo Perak Ches Halacha Yud Beis, where the Rambam says that you could buy an esrog which was Mishum even though it was guarded, you could still fulfill the mitzvah from it. So that sounds like Rashi, that it's allowed to be used. And the Ramban also, in his commentary on Yevamos Kufchav Bezam at Aleph, and he repeats this also in his commentary on the Torah in Parshas Bahar, Perek Chav Hei, Pasuk Hei, he learns like Rashi that even though the produce was guarded, it's allowed to be used. And Reb Moshe quotes a bunch of other Rishonim, the Rash and the Rashba and the Raivid. So the consensus of the Rishonim, he says, is that produce which was guarded is still allowed to be eaten and therefore could be used for the mitzvah of Esrog. So even though Rabbeinu Tam would disagree and prohibit using it for the mitzvah, but Rab Moshe says you can rely on the other Rishonim. Now, Rav Yosef Dov Salavechik in Nefshah Rav, page 83, is also quoted as having said that you could use an Esrog which was guarded, even though... He was not a big fan of the Heter Mechira. The Salavechik family were in general against the Heter Mechira, starting with Rav Salavechik's great-grandfather, the Beis Halevi. But still, Rav Salavechik said that you could use an esrog which was guarded, and he had an interesting theory. Unlike Reb Moshe, who says that Rabbeinu Tam would hold that you can't use such an esrog, but we hold like those who disagree with him, Rav Salavechik argued that even Rabbeinu Tam would agree that you could use a guarded esrog for the mitzvah, even though it's prohibited to be eaten. 
Now, what about the halacha that an esrog has to be able to be eaten? So Rav Salavechik explained that Rabbeinu Tam doesn't hold that a guarded esrog is actually prohibited like treif food, meaning it's inherently prohibited to be eaten like shellfish. This esrog is inherently allowed to be eaten, but it's a violation of the mitzvah of Shemitah to go ahead and eat it. So this is an interesting perspective on Rabbeinu Tam's view that he doesn't hold the esrog itself transforms into becoming treif, but rather there's a separate halacha that as part of the rules of Shemitah, a guarded fruit shouldn't be eaten. So the esrog shouldn't be eaten as part of the rules of Shemitah. But that won't affect one's ability to use this esrog for the mitzvah because inherently the esrog is allowed. An example of this would be if someone used a new dish before they were tovel it. So they shouldn't have used that dish. But the food that they made in it didn't become prohibited. They violated the rules of using a new dish without being tovel it, but they didn't violate the rules of eating treif. So in the same way, eating this guarded produce is a violation of Shemitah, but it's not a violation of treif. So that's why even according to Rabbeinu Tam, one could argue that you could use this esrog for the mitzvah, even though it's prohibited to be eaten. So that's some of the discussion surrounding two of the major issues of a Shemitah esrog. How do you purchase it? And can you take one which was guarded, even if you can't eat it, according to Rabbeinu Tam? And there is a third major issue, which is that all of this would work in Eretz Yisrael itself, but there's a prohibition to transport produce of Shemitah from Eretz Yisrael outside of Eretz Yisrael. So how do we get the esrog to people outside of Eretz Yisrael who want to use it? But we'll save that issue for another separate recording because it's a big issue and there's a lot to say about that. So we'll conclude this recording with two smaller issues. So far, we've only been discussing an esrog of Shemitah. But do the halachas of Shemitah apply to the three other species, the lulav, the hadasim, and the aravos? So with regards to the lulav, there's a big debate amongst the Rishonim whether there is the sanctity of Shemitah on a lulav. The Gemara in Sukkah and Mem Amad Aleph has a long discussion about whether there could be sanctity of Shemitah on a tree, on wood. Because the only use for it is burning it, and once it's burned, so then it's already not going to have the sanctity of Shemitah. So the Gemara discusses that there's some wood that might be used for other things even before it's burned and then it would have the prohibitions of Shemitah attached to it. So it's unclear at the end of the Gemara whether the Gemara believes that there is Shemitah sanctity on a lulav or not. So there's a big debate amongst the Rishonim, the commentators, what the final conclusion is. The Rambam in his commentary on the Mishnah, which deals with this whole issue, in Sukkah, Perak Gimel, Mishnah, Yod, Aleph, and the Bartanura in his commentary on that Mishnah also, so they both write that a lulav has no sanctity of Shemitah because eitz ba'almahu, it's just a piece of wood, and wood does not have Shemitah sanctity on it. 
So both the Rambam and the Bartanura hold that a lulav has no shmita kedusha. On the other hand, the Baal HaMa'or and his commentary on Sukkadaf Mem Ahmed Aleph and Rabbeinu Hananel also, they both hold that there is sanctity of shmita on the lulav. And the Baal HaMa'or says that the idea would be because you could use a lulav to sweep. Rabbeinu Hananel seems to imply because a lulav is not intended for burning, it might get burned at the end, but you're using it for the mitzvah. So since there's a use for the lulav other than burning it, it would have Shemitah sanctity, and therefore the rules of Shemitah would apply to it. Now, Reb Kiva Eger, in his commentary on the Mishnah, quotes the Kapos Tamarim and the Tiferes Yisrael in his commentary on the Mishnah, and they both question the Bartanura's position because they say that if you look in the Gemara, it seems clear that a Lulav could theoretically have the sanctity of Shemitah. And the reason why the Lulav in the specific case of the Gemara does not have sanctity is because it grew in the sixth year. So because it grew before Shemitah, that's why this Lulav does not have the Shemitah Kedusha. But if it grew during the Shemitah year, then it seems clear in the Gemara that it would have sanctity like the Balamor's view. So Reb Kiveger and the Tiferes Yisrael ask that question on the view of the Bartanura. But the Ran, in his commentary on the Rif, so he quotes both options to explain why the Lulav in this case is not sanctified, either because it grew in the sixth year, but if it grew during Shemitah, it would have Kedusha of Shemitah. Or option number two, he quotes the Bartanura's idea that since it's just a piece of wood, then it has no Kedusha of Shemitah. So the Ran does not come down on one side, but he just leaves both possibilities open. So, so far we have a debate between the Rambam and the Bartanura against the Balamor and Rabbeinu Hananel whether a lulav that grows in Shemitah is sanctified and the Ran has both possibilities. Now the Rambam we quoted is explicit in his commentary on the Mishnah, but in his halachas in the Mishnah Torah he doesn't address this issue directly, but there's strong indication that he still believes that a lulav can never become sanctified. And the Rambam just states plainly that one can buy a lulav during Shemitah. So the Rambam just states it as a fact that you can always buy a lulav during Shemitah. So Rabbi Yosef Lieberman in his Chuvas Mishnas Yosef Chelek Aleph Simen Chavches, he quotes that the Kapos Tamarim and the Radvaz and the Orsameach all understand the Rambam as reiterating his view that regardless of when the lulav grew, whether it's in the sixth year or the seventh year, you can always buy it because a lulav never has the sanctity of Shemitah. It's just a piece of wood. On the other hand, he quotes that the Mari Korkis in his commentary on the Rambam, so he quotes the whole discussion of the Gemara and he indicates that the Rambam's case is talking about a lulav which grew in the sixth year, not in the seventh year, so that's why it has no sanctity. But the indication of the Mari Korkis is that he reads into the Rambam that if the lulav had grown in the seventh year, then it would have sanctity. So there's some minor debate about this issue in the Rambam, but again, the standard interpretation of the Rambam seems to say that his halachas are in line with his commentary on the Mishnah, that he holds there's never any sanctity to the lulav. 
Now, Rabbi Yosef Lieberman, in his Chuvis Mishnas Yosef Chelik Bey's Simen Lamed Aleph, revisits this issue, and he explains what the whole debate is about. And that is, it's a very fundamental issue when the halacha says that something only becomes prohibited under the laws of Shemitah, if it can be used, what does that mean? So he develops that there's two opinions in the Rishonim. Does it need specifically to be able to be eaten? Does it have to be something that's edible? Or is any use enough? And he explains that that's the debate over the Lulav. The Rambam and the Bartanura, they hold that something only gets the sanctity of Shemitah if it can be eaten. Now, a lulav is not eaten, so it's the same as any piece of wood, and it has no sanctity of shemitah. As opposed to the Balamor and Rabbeinu Hananel, they hold that the usage for shemitah is not only eating, it's any usage. So since the lulav can be used as a broom, that's enough to say that the lulav does have the laws of shemitah. So this is a very fundamental debate over what level of usage there needs to be in order for the laws of Shemitah to kick in. Is it any usage or only eating? And that's exactly the debate over whether the Lulav has some of the laws of Shemitah or not. Now, what's the practical halacha here? So there seems to be a debate over this issue amongst contemporary poskim. Rabbi Yosef Lieberman and his chuvan chelik Aleph Simen Chavches, so he ends off with a leniency that nowadays there would be no sanctity for the lulav, and this is based in part on the chazon ish, because even though the chazon ish holds like the view that any benefit, even if it's not eating, but any benefit whatsoever is going to create the laws of Shemitah. So if the lulav can be used as a broom, it should be prohibited. But on the other hand, the Chazon Ish argues that the benefit is defined by each culture how they use things. And since we don't use lulavs nowadays as brooms, we have separate objects called brooms. So therefore, lulavs nowadays would not be considered something that we benefit from and there would be no sanctity of Shemitah on them. And he quotes that the Maril Diskin also seemed to say this leniency that lulavs nowadays don't have sanctity. And in the next two simanim, in Simen Chavtes and Simen Lamed, he quotes Chuvas from Rav Vosner and Rav Shlomo Zalman Arbach, that both of them also seem to agree with him that there would not be sanctity on the lulav nowadays. And Rav Vosner, very significantly in his Chuva, quotes that he remembers the Chazon Ish also ruling leniently on this issue. So there is no Kedusha for a lulav nowadays. On the other hand, the stipler quoted in Archus Rabbeinu Chelek Bey's page 326, so he takes the totally opposite approach, and he says that even though the Chazon Ish entertained the idea that there wouldn't be Kedusha on a Lulav because we don't use Lulav as brooms, but practically the Chazon Ish was never lenient, he was always stringent, and he held that you have to be strict and treat the Lulav with the sanctity of Shemitah, and that's how the stipler used to treat it, and the stipler furthermore says that you shouldn't make the lulav holder that you put the hadasim and aravos from out of lulav leaves which have shemitah because then you're using the shemitah leaves to hold the hadasim and the aravos. 
The stipler does say that you could make the rings for the lulav out of the shemitah lulav, but you shouldn't make the holder for the hadasim and aravos out of those leaves. So if someone wants to be strict this year, then they should treat their lulav with the same sanctity as the esrog, and they shouldn't purchase it directly unless they're using one of the permitted ways of doing the purchase. And according to the stipler, they shouldn't make the hadasim and arava holder out of those lulav leaves. On the other hand, as we said, there's certainly a contemporary school of poskim who are lenient that the lulav does not have the sanctity of Shemitah like it seems to be the simple reading of the halacha in the Rambam. Now, the Mishnas Yosef points out a very nice little detail which will bring together a lot of our discussion so far. And he says that even if someone is going to be strict with regards to the lulav and treat it with the kedusha of Shemitah, but still a lulav mishumar, a lulav which was guarded, is still going to be allowed for the mitzvah without any question. So even though we mentioned before that there's a big question whether you can use a guarded esrog for the mitzvah, because according to Rabbeinu Tam, it can't be eaten. So if it can't be eaten, it can't be used for the mitzvah. But the Magnavram and Simen Tafresh Mem Tes Sifkatan Chaf makes a very important point that that whole halacha only applies to an esrog, which is an edible fruit. So there it has to be permitted to be eaten in order to be valid for the mitzvah, as opposed to a lulav, which is never eaten. So there, there's no rule that it has to be permitted to be eaten. So even if it was guarded, and according to Rabbeinu Tam, it's prohibited to be eaten, that's not going to affect the status of the lulav. So if the lulav has the sanctity of Shemitah, that would primarily mean that it can't be purchased directly, unless you're using one of the permitted ways. But it would not mean that once it's purchased, it can't be used, because even if it was guarded or worked, and it's not allowed to be eaten, it's still allowed to be used for the mitzvah. So that's a very nice point that brings together a lot of the points we discussed earlier. Now, there's a similar doubt with regards to the hadasim, and this is based on a doubt in the Yerushalmi whether something which is not meant for eating, but it's made for smelling, has the kedusha of Shemitah. So the same issue would be with regards to hadasim, which are not edible, but they do smell nicely. So there is room to say that they would have the Kedusha of Shemitah. So again, the Maharil Diskin held that there's no Kedusha of Shemitah for Hadassim. And the reason is because our Hadassim are grown for the mitzvah not to smell. And similarly, Rav Shlomo Zalman Arbach, in his letter quoted in the Mishnas Yosef, Chelek Aleph Simen Lamed, where he said that the Lulav doesn't have Kedusha because we don't use it as brooms. So he makes the same point with regards to Hadassim, and he even uses that as a proof for his view with regards to lulav, which is that since we don't primarily use hadasim for smell, even though we're more likely to smell a hadas than to use a lulav for a broom, but still it's not enough to say that we're really using the hadasim. And so Rav Shlomo Zalman holds that there wouldn't be any kedusha of Shemitah on the hadasim. Now the stipler is similarly strict in this case. In Archus Rabbeinu Chelek Beis, page 329, he's quoted as being unsure about whether hadasim should have kedusha of Shemitah or not. But he erred on the side of caution. He was strict and he treated them with kedusha 
because of the possibility in the Yerushalmi that anything that you smell is going to have the Kedusha of Shemitah. Now with regards to Aravos, it's clear that there is no Kedusha of Shemitah because they're not eaten and they're not smelled and they're not used as brooms. So they don't have any of the things that the Esrog, the Lulab, or the Hadas have. So it's clear that the Arava would not have any Kedusha of Shemitah. So that's the story with regards to whether the Kedusha of Shemitah applies to the other three species and not only the Esrog, which is the only one that's edible amongst all the four species. Now, the final issue that we'll touch on is what to do with the species after you've used them. Because Shemitah produce can't just be thrown away and it can't be destroyed or treated in a disrespectful manner. So what do you do with the Shemitah Esrog or Lulav after you've used it in order to discard it properly? So you can't do anything which is going to destroy it from being able to be eaten. So you can't throw the estrog in the garbage. And even what people do on a regular year that they put the besamim cloves in the estrog to be used as the besamim for Havdalah, so that would not be allowed with an estrog of Shemitah. On the other hand, using it as a decoration in the sukkah, either the estrog or the lulav would be allowed because you're not destroying the produce from being being able to be used after Sukkot is over and you take the decoration down so it will be the same as it was and you could theoretically use the Esrog or you could use the Lulav as a broom. Now the Esrog is probably not going to be edible after being shaken the whole Yantif or being a decoration in the Sukkah but since you're not actively destroying it you're just using it as part of the mitzvah of Lulav or the mitzvah of decorating the Sukkah so then that's not a violation of the laws of Shemitah. Now there is a question, can you use the lulav to burn the chametz, as many people do on a regular year? So the Mishnas Yosef argues that that should not be allowed because that's actively destroying the lulav in order to create the fire for burning the chametz or cooking the matzahs. So according to the Mishnas Yosef, if you hold that a lulav has kedusha, which is questionable as we said, then you shouldn't use it as part of the fire for burning chametz or cooking matzahs. On the other hand, the stipler is quoted in Orchus Rabbeinu that even though he held the lulav does have kedusha, he would still use it in order to burn chametz like every other year. So the best thing to do with an esrog of Shemitah, which you used for the mitzvah, is to eat it if possible. And if not possible to eat it, then to wait until it rots and gets ruined on its own, and then once it's inedible, so then it could be discarded. So in this recording, we've discussed five of the six major issues with regards to a Shemitah Esrog. Number one, what determines what's considered a Shemitah Esrog? Number two, how do you properly purchase a Shemitah Esrog? Number three, if the rules were violated, can you use that esrog for the mitzvah? Number four, does the laws of Shemitah apply to Lulav, Hadas, or Arava? And number five, what to do with the Shemitah esrog after you're done using it for the mitzvah? The one remaining issue, which we'll discuss in the next recording, is how can you transport a Shemitah esrog from Eretz Yisrael to Chutz Aretz for someone located in Chutz Aretz? who wants to use an Eretz Yisrael esrog during the year of Shemitah.